0: How are you? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm so genuinely excited to have both of you today, Uh, and welcome to everybody joining us across different platforms like LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram Live, Twitter Spaces. Uh, Today, I got co-founders of Local Laundry, uh, and I terribly, I can never introduce the company properly, so I wouldn't do a good justice if I introduced your company. So why don't I let both of you introduce yourself as well as your company? Um, and then we can take it from there.
1: Well, we are Local Laundry. My name is Connor Curran. This is Dustin Paisley, and together we are the co-owners of Local Laundry. Local Laundry is Canada's most caring clothing company. Oh, you might ask, how, how can clothing is so caring? Well, let me tell you. That's a very good question. <laughs> Allow me to interview myself here. Uh, no <laughs> one cares more about more about how our clothing is made than us. No one cares more about how we treat our customers than us. No one cares more about our team members than us. Most importantly, no one cares about investing back in the community than us. We're on a mission to donate over a million dollars to local charities across Canada by 2030. And that, my friend, is the wonder in a nutshell.
0: I love that I love that. thank you. Thank you for doing my job for me and uh, jumping in and asking yourself about local laundry no seriously it's um it's been a great journey, and we've uh, we've got introduced uh about a year ago, maybe a little bit less than that by um, a mutual friends. and so you know this would not have been possible uh, without patrick but i am um, i one thing that stood out to me when when we spoke last time and when we met was just how complimentary your skills are. Um, I mean my god you got the combination of operations finance marketing what else, what else can you uh, what else can you ask in the ideal sort of you know partnership um, but I'd love to take a step back and before we talk about you know your your skills and your business would love to get to know both of you a little bit more maybe you know we can start with dustin um, yourself tell us a bit about your background what did you do before local laundry and potentially how did you uh, come together with Connor how did you meet Connor um,
2: Yeah, so uh, I actually have a background in, in, I'll call it finance, small business. So I I was working at a bank previous to this, and I was doing small business financing, small business advising. So I would work with companies on kind of helping getting them uh, financing in place for small business loans if they were just getting started. If they were looking to grow, kind of work with them to figure out different strategies with regards to financing and how you can help them grow And then I would do advising on top of that outside of the financing. talking about marketing and sales. And so it was a really great transition for me because I got to work with and learn from hundreds of different businesses. And I got to learn the ins and outs of why businesses, you know, succeeded, start to notice some trends on what the right companies were doing, uh, why businesses fail. I got to see the the disasters that happened and again, take a bit of an inside scoop onto what actually happened, how that played out and uh, how they ultimately failed. So It was a really great experience for me. And prior to being in banking, I actually worked for a promotional company. Uh, And so that's where Connor and I got connected prior Mm. to being in banking. And so we honestly, it was a random connection through a mutual friend who knew that Connor was looking for some local sourcing for some of the products he was just creating. And it gave me a chance to be able to actually sit down and talk about uh, how we could actually help and how I could maybe take over some of that. So it was a random coffee connection between a mutual friend. And that's what started it. So Connor and I sat down for coffee and kind of went over what Connor was working on, uh, which was all about kind of celebrating and helping promote local, which for us was Calgary at the time. There wasn't really anything out there that allowed Calgarians from a clothing perspective to really proudly represent where they came from and local was really trending. People really wanted to celebrate where they're from. And so uh, that was an opportunity for me to, uh, to, to join Connor and see how we could kind of take this thing to the next step. Um, huge passion for entrepreneurship, huge passion for, uh, for, for Calgary, for the city and for trying to build a socially purpose business. I had experience in that university. So uh, I kind of said to Connor, look, I, I want to join you. I want to, I want to help. And so uh, we, quote unquote, dated for three months before we got <laughs> married. So we, we put like an informal oh, agreement in place and then three months went really well. And so we signed the incorporation papers and, and off we went.
0: And were you always passionate? About, I mean, I, I, I think you mentioned passion for entrepreneurship, but have you did you know what you were kind of getting into leaving a corporate job behind, leaving all that sort of like, you know, employment and going on your own i mean was it was it scary what, what, what did you think about it at that time
2: yeah all of the above um what's funny is i actually studied entrepreneurship in university uh i, I started uh one company which was actually in the promotional clothing space uh, i had done another quote-unquote startup that didn't quite make it to launch and then um it was strange for me to actually go into banking because um, i did not have a finance background at the time but to me, I, I consider that my MBA, and it was very hard at the beginning. I, I didn't know how to read a balance sheet. I didn't understand income statements. So to go into that role was, was very challenging, but it taught me so much. It was, a, it was an MBA, and it really helped me kind of get a deeper understanding of, of the operation and financial side of the business, which, as you learn as you grow businesses, is, is the most important aspect, right, um, without the finance knowledge, without that understanding the business is, quite frankly not going to continue to run and so i was the opposite where i always wanted to be in entrepreneurship always wanted to be running my own company so it was strange for me to be at the bank so quite honestly i was kind of waiting for my opportunity to be able to jump in but through that time you know had started a family had had bought a house had kind of done the adult things that you do so it was a little bit scary to be kind of leaving that that full-time bank job um, that full-time bank job uh and and still be able to support my family and kids so um, I think anyone who's going to leave their full-time job for a company Mm -hmm. there's definitely some scary moments but we planned we made sure everything was was in order and and it wasn't um, you know maybe a bit of a shot in the dark but it was calculated.
0: And a little just a tactical follow-up here but for people listening that are potentially thinking about starting a business did you kind of gradually transition into it through you know full-time then part-time and then kind of Uh, I I mean, you know, going from full-time at the, at the company, you know, to sort of being part-time or did you make a leap and overnight just went completely unemployed and becoming an entrepreneur? Cold
2: turkey. Yeah, we went cold turkey. Um, That, that was the best strategy. I mean, basically worked kind of part-time for for the six years in starting the company before I went full-time I think it was was five years. Yeah. Five years. So it was five years. So I'd worked, you know, evenings weekends whenever wow. on the company for for about five years until that full transition to full-time was um and when i transitioned you know connor had been full-time for a couple of years we, we have mm-hmm. an employee who was full-time at the time so i wasn't number two full-time in i was number three. okay um, but again it was it was planned it was calculated uh you know we knew that we were replacing a salary so it was um you know let's say a, a smooth
0: transition connor over to you so we'd love to kind of capture that. Um you know story before before local laundry and from my understanding you've immigrated from overseas i think from uh, from sweden if i remember correctly um tell us a bit more about that I'm, I'm always excited to hear stories of you know entrepreneurs and you know me myself being an immigrant and coming to canada as well would love to kind of get your take on what what do you remember and how did you come to an idea of launching local laundry
1: yeah great question so so i myself was born here in canada but If you can tell from my lovely ginger beard, my parents came from (laughs) Ireland. So I'm a dual citizen with both Canada and Ireland. And the point in time my life came where I wanted to leave Canada and go study abroad. And that's where I went and lived in Sweden. Mm -hmm. It was there that I decided that I wanted to become an entrepreneur, much like my parents. My parents came to this country, no money, no education. They worked three jobs until they could finally open up their own restaurant, their own bar and restaurant, become entrepreneurs themselves, and be their own boss, use it as a way to provide for their family, but also invest back in the community. And so, while I was living abroad over in Sweden, I was doing my master's, my MBA, and I was there that I kind of looked back at my parents and said, "You know what? I really like what they did. I really like the life that they they built for themselves as entrepreneurs. They were able to provide for their families, be their own boss, be in command of their own their own journey, their own lives, but also use the business as a way to invest back in the community." So that's where I decided. You know what, mom and dad. I'm gonna be an entrepreneur. They said, Wow, that is fantastic, Connor. What do you want to do? And I said, You're not gonna believe this. Clothing. And that's when they started laughing at me because they said, Connor, you're very talented. You you know a lot of things, but boy, you are not a you were don't know anything about clothing. I said, That's okay. I'm gonna learn. What I was really drawn to about clothing, and yes, I'll admit, not the most fashionable guy in the world, don't know a thing about clothing, but what i was really drawn to clothing is how we choose to dress ourselves is an expression either on a conscious or subconscious level of our beliefs and values and i was really really enamored by the way that clothing not only can be used as an expression of those values but as a way to bring people together to connect with others i mean we see it all the time just look at simple as you know wearing a flames jersey or your favorite sports team's jersey you see someone else and you go you immediately have this instant connection and i thought i could do the same with some of my values, you know, what it means to be a young entrepreneur, someone who wants to invest back in the community, someone who's proud of where they come from. And so that was enough to kind of fuel my fire to kind of get started. And again, I wasn't intimidated by the fact that I didn't know anything that actually kind of excited me because I -hmm. I was able to learn all these things in the fly. And it's never been a better time to start a business because you know how all I did, was I say, you know, I don't know how to do anything. I don't know anything, but I'm going to learn. So, what's the first step? I simply Google search how to make a teacher company. And then from there, I watched a YouTube video. And from there, a couple hours later, 50 bucks later, I had an online teacher cl- clothing store. And I, I had this clothing company, and it's just learning, learning on the fly, step by step. Okay, we got it up and running. How do we get it? The word out there how do we market how do we get our first customer how do we get the shipping out how do we you know what does this print what is that style what is blah 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 and you just learn on the fly and that's really how i kind of got started so i moved back to canada from sweden with mm-hmm. this little online t-shirt company that really didn't have too much traction met dustin and he had even more fuel to that fire and uh, we've been We've been cooking with jet fuel ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love. So, when you
0: registered a company, was it a, in Sweden? Were you thinking about potentially selling to uh, uh, European clients, or were you always focused on this, you know, local Canadian market? Um, and it was just the time, you know, you you'd be, you traveling and you know taking uh, classes abroad, kind of expanded your horizons. But you wanted to always go back. What what, what do you remember?
1: I always we knew we were always gonna come back to Canada. So that's where I knew I wanted to sell and, and really start to grow and scale the business. But I mean, talk about technology coming together for a real global supply chain. You're living in Sweden. The shirts were getting printed in LA and getting shipped to Canada. So it was really kind of like a whole global thing. But it wasn't until about 2017 when Dust mm-hmm. and I you know, were really starting to grow the business where we started to realize the massive impact that Canadian yeah. manufacturing can have both on the diversity of the economy, but also the quality of the garment, but most importantly, you know, the impact on the planet. So mm-hmm. that's when we really started to dive in and go double down on Canadian manufacturing and only using manufacturers that adhere to strict Canadian labor and environmental laws. And that was kind of our key differentiator, you know, because not a lot of clothing is made here in Canada. As a matter of fact, I'm glad you asked. I have a, uh, you're, I don't, I can tell by the look on your face you're going to say, Connor, just how much clothing was made in Canada? I can, I can tell <laughs> that's what you're thinking. So I'm going to answer it for you. According to Stats Canada, you're a stats guy, you like numbers. Uh, according to Stats Canada, prior to 1989, over 70 percent of all clothing bought and sold here in Canada was made in Canada. 70%. So if anyone came here whose grandparents or parents were here in Canada, the majority of their closet growing up was clothing that was made locally, made here mm-hmm. in Canada. Now, as of 2020, that same Stat Canada stat, that number is down to less than 5%. Less than mm-hmm. 5% of all clothing bought and sold here in Canada is made in Canada. And when you really look at it, like what what impact does that have? What impact does that have on the economy? On the people that are making our clothes, the environment, the quality of the clothes themselves—you can go quite down a rabbit hole about all the consequences that that has happened to, to to our clothing and our wardrobes, right? So, and why is that? Why 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 was such a decline in such a short period
0: of time? Was it what? What? Why do you think Canada stopped producing and started importing? Um, um, they really opened the
2: borders, right? And that's that's when a lot of the laws came in and, and a lot of the trade agreements came in where. Um, you could start to import clothes from from around the world. and so uh, it really comes down to one main factor, which is why Canadian made is so much more expensive and that's labor cost. right I think a lot of companies realize that by producing overseas and and finding factories that didn't have to adhere to strict labor laws didn't have to adhere to environmental laws and mm-hmm. didn't have to pay you know a, a living wage or a livable wage at, at that um, then they chose to do so. and it's really unfortunate because it's created you know quite a um, the fashion industry is a a terrible industry, to be honest. And I think when we first launched the company, we didn't know any better. You know, Connor had started it with a Google search of how to start a t-shirt company, knew nothing about the industry or about how garments were made or any of that. But the more we learned, the more we realized that Mm -hmm. we just weren't comfortable selling that type of garment, right? We had no idea where it was made, how it was made, the working conditions, how the workers were treated and you see it with you know the Bangladesh Bangladesh factory collapses and, and all the horrible working conditions that you're seeing that workers are subject subjected to, uh, you know constant articles coming out of workers in India and Bangladesh who are you know they're revolting because they're they're not paid enough to live, um, which is right you know it's 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 wrong it's it's quite challenging. So we decided that by by transitioning to domestic made, we know that there are very strict Canadian environmental labor laws. There are very strict Canadian environmental laws that that you know ensure that workers are put in great working conditions, you know, they're, they're adhering to, to these laws that, that keep people safe. And so for us, that was a big part of the transition. And uh, the other piece too, which most people don't know, but <clears throat> you know, when you look at the impact of the garment, so we just went through a whole life cycle analysis of all of our fibers and all of our products. And um, you know, the biggest impact of a garment is actually end of life, right? So you look at the, the carbon intensity, the water usage, everything you see through the cycle of a garment and the largest, you know, almost 80% is actually end of life. And, and post-purchase. So yes, you know, there's, there's the carbon, there's the water, there's, there's the impact that it takes to, to create a garment, but the most of it comes after you purchase it. So from a water and a carbon perspective, you know, washing and caring for that garment takes a lot. So obviously there's, there's some things you can do to be more sustainable in caring for the garment itself, but also uh, the end of life. So by choosing to manufacture uh, with, with uh, manufacturing partners that do adhere to very strict uh, quality guidelines, it means that we can reduce our impact greatly at the end of life, right? Because instead of a t-shirt lasting, I mean, so many of these manufacturers that are you know, using very cheap materials, cheap labor overseas, they, they might last maybe 10 wears, right? Maybe, maybe 20 washes. Whereas when you're investing in a higher quality garment, you're actually having a far greater environmental impact because your use of life is extending far longer, uh, and then there's a whole nother you know, piece on top of that with sustainability when it comes to uh, actually you know, how you can reuse at the end of life. So there's a lot of aspects there, too. But the more we learned about how the fashion industry was and how unsustainable it was and just the, the horrible conditions in which workers were subjected to, you know, was was really where we made the switch to domestic manufacturers, because we can go visit the factories. We can actually go there. You know, we can talk to them and we know that they're actually being uh, they're, they're adhering to those very strict labor and
1: environmental laws yeah and one thing
0: that i just want to kind of underscore um as as your phone is buzzing probably with purchase orders and other stuff um mm-hmm. is that you guys knew nothing about fashion you guys well I, uh, from from this conversation and it's just fascinating to see how over time you you acquire this knowledge you know for for a lot of people that are thinking hmm should i even do this I and mean, i know nothing about sneakers or jewelry or you know um cosmetics i just i like using them but I, a lot of people have these types of concerns um when they're considering to potentially start a business and this is a really good example that you could have a finance background and a marketing background and you know true passion um um you know to see this through and the rest will will come uh together because you can learn online you can obviously talk to experts um i mean linkedin and everything like that just became such a uh, you know I- incredible way to crowdsource knowledge and information and you know reaching out to other founders like yourself and asking hey you know i'm considering doing this and that you know what can you recommend me? what should i think about how do i you know source this product where do i sell hopefully you know a podcast like that can also answer some of these questions but i just admire the fact that uh, you know it is quite possible to start a business from scratch and a few years later turn this into a quite successful uh, operations um, but I want to um, maybe zoom in on on the first two years in business, and I think Connor, this is where you were um, still working b- before Dustin joined the team, and really, really importing products from you know LA and selling them in Canada. Um, tell us more about that. Who was who were buying these uh, these products, and 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 what was the differentiation at that time? Was it style, certain style? Was there a certain pricing advantage. How did you think about your company at that time? And how, how would you even describe, you know, your, your brand uh, before you started weaving uh, sustainability and, and made locally and other considerations uh, into your business?
1: I think the, the key differentiator for us when we first started was re- we were really all about building community, you know, really wanting to connect with people one of the things that Dustin and I love more than anything, you know, it's not about the clothes. It's it's really about connecting with people, building those relationships, really getting to understand, you know, what it is that they want to do, how we can help each other grow. And that's really what kind of made us stand out right from the very beginning. You know, our marketing strategy, for those first two years, we didn't have a ton of money for ads or anything. Our marketing strategy was just to go out and meet other entrepreneurs like yourself, one-on-one, hear their story, hear how, you know, figure out ways that we can help each other grow. So for those first two years, what we would be doing is going out and doing uh, uh, photo shoots once, twice a week, you know, with different bloggers, different photographers, different businesses, artists, you name it, and we'd be taking that content and sharing it across all of our shared social media platforms and just telling each other stories. And we started doing that enough that we started to build the, this really great networking community of like-minded individuals who both shared our values, but wanted to do something that either invested back in the community or wanted to grow something that can kind of help them help them achieve their goals and, and really exemplify their, their personal values.
0: Hmm. Buy a t-shirt, join a community. And I, I I love that angle. And all the investors out there would pull out their hair, you know, screaming how unscalable that is. And you, you totally should not be doing that. But, even with you know uh, other founders, and you know there's many e-commerce you know brands that we've interviewed and in the process of interviewing and just know through connections, you know share that strategy, that grassroots movement, that building in public, sometimes uh, you know sharing the wins and, and losses and and uh, connecting with your customers. It's not, it's not a lot, you know not not often that you you know get to visit somebody and maybe deliver that package with your own hands and then introduce yourself as a founder, as a co-founder and say, Hey, I'm actually the guy that runs this business, but here I am, you know, hand delivering this, uh, this box over to you. So, so that, there, there's two sides to the Adam. And I, mean,
2: I, I laughed because Connor just had to leave because I, I don't know what's happening, but I think our toilets are flooding. So there's the having to deal with the shit quite literally um, <laughs> when stuff goes wrong, right? You, you own everything. So the toilets flood, uh, you know, the, the, the roof floods in your warehouse, you know, you've got product that flood, you're responsible for everything. So you have to deal with the shitty parts of the business, which is solving yeah. all the problems, no matter what those problems are, uh, which is sometimes cleaning the toilets. You're making sure that, I don't know, maybe there's a water pressure issue, but the toilets are coming up. Um, but then there's the other side. So something we call, which is in the wild. Uh, so every time we see someone wearing one of our garments, mm-hmm. um, when we're out, and about, we call that in the wild. And and there's no greater feeling than that, right? Is walking out and seeing someone who is is using your product. You don't know them, right? They bought it. They don't know who you are. You don't know who they are, but it's a complete stranger. And they have spent their hard earned cash on your product because they share the same values. And so that is the part where um, it's a really, really, really cool feeling. And as a founder to actually be able to see that and get the satisfaction knowing that someone has has found value in your product. Um, and then the last piece for us, which is really important is, you know, not only do we do domestic manufacturing to make sure that our product you know, is, is, is of a higher quality and, and we have a far greater impact, not only on our you know, local manufacturing economy, but also on the environment. Uh, but we do a lot to give back to the community. And so I think that's that's sort of the pinnacle where it's not about us. It's not about our company. It's about the impact that we can have. And so to date, you know, as a small business with right now only three employees, you know, we're still a very small business. We've been able to raise over $175,000 uh, for local charities. And so that's something that I think we're super proud of. Um, that That really, really... Kind of, when you've got those late nights or those long days or when your toilets are backed up and you're having to hand clean water from the floor, which I assume we're probably going to have to do. Uh, those are the things that make it worth it, right? You look and it's like, you know, we've made such an incredible impact. Um, that's what is worth it, right? Because if, if you didn't have that, you know, days like today where your toilets are backing up, they don't feel worth it. But when you know that there is that impact you're making and there's that goal. So our goal is to raise a million dollars for local charities. Yeah. That north star really helps guide us, and we know that you know we still got work to do, we've got impact to make, you know we've got a long way to go.
0: Yeah. So I want to touch base on uh, on the fundra- uh, on the charitable giving and the impact at the later uh, part of this interview. So we'll get back to that in a minute, uh, and hopefully we'll get Connor back from all the all the all the mess that he's dealing with. But you know, what I really wanted to ask you when you joined, you know, Connor and his um, in his sort of like you know currently existing business at that time what were the the changes what were the things that you implemented um and how did you sort of like come to assess what are the what are the things that you should be doing versus maybe doubling down on versus changing and completely revamping some of the things we'd love to uh ask you about that
2: Sure. Yeah. So I'll talk about, you know, this experience with Connor, but also, you know, what I learned, um, not only through, you know, my entrepreneurship education, but also working at the bank and and seeing businesses thrive, flourish and and fail. And I I think one of the biggest things when it comes to having a partner is is understanding and knowing your differences and also being self-aware enough to understand and know where you have weaknesses, right? So you know your strengths, but you also know your weaknesses, uh, and and you're, you're willing to admit to those and, and find someone that can offset that. So the, the best description that we have of Connor and I is, is Connor's the bulldozer, right? Like he just, he will Google search how to start a t-shirt company. Then he will follow all the instructions. He will just go, right? He will just, he'll go and he'll destroy anything in his path. Like a bull in a china shop. He'll just make it happen. Um, which is great. And as a startup founder, you absolutely need that. And if you want to be pushing the organization forward, you, you have to have someone that doesn't care and is willing to just continue to push for it. They don't care, you know, if they look stupid or if they, whatever the case is, they're just, they're powering through. And I think uh, a lot of times uh, I can suffer from analysis paralysis and I want to make sure everything's perfect. And I definitely suffer from that perfectionist syndrome. So Connor and I are a good balance because he's the bulldozer, but I'm the ruler, right? So Connor bulldozes everything. He makes sure we're still going, but I'm, I'm coming around smoothing it to make sure things look good. We've got a process we're, we're building operations mm. around it. It, everything works. Okay. And so that's where, for us, we have a really great partnership because Connor is always pushing us. Um, and I'm coming along and trying to make things a little bit more smooth over I'll, I'll keep an eye on the margin. It's okay. That's a great idea. Let's talk through financially, how we can make that work, right? Do the numbers work. So, There is that balance. Connor's definitely more the visionary, right? The ideas, the coming up with crazy ideas, trying to push us forward, doing the sales, you know, going out and getting the revenue. And I'm more the operations. Like, okay, great. We've made that sale. Good job. How are we going to fulfill on this, right? We've Mm -hmm. promised X, Y, Z. Let's figure out how we actually make that happen. And so that makes a really great partnership uh, for us because where he has strengths, I have weaknesses and vice versa, right? I'm not the greatest salesperson, but when he makes a sale and he promises on a product, you know, I will work through operations to make sure that, mm-hmm. that happens. Um, the other thing I'll say too, that's been really helpful is the company has always been about building community. So we kind of, we've had that as sort of our North star, right? We're all about building community. We want to raise a million dollars for, for local charities. And I, I find that that's really helpful to help kind of remove the ego, right? Cause it, a business partnership can be difficult because you're making difficult decisions and those decisions are impacting you know, your life. They're impacting your potential livelihood, right? So they are very big decisions to make. And so as a partnership, you have to make sure that you know, you're making them together and that there's shared input. But I find that when you do have that something that's a little bit bigger than yourselves, right? So everything we do is about building community. It became a little bit easier when we are looking at making decisions, right? And this is also to do with company values. When you do have those values and they're clear, you can go back to, okay, it's not about who's right or wrong. It's not about who's got the better idea. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Which of these is, is in the best interest of building community and how can we make sure we're making the right decision with that aspect? So that's really helped to kind of remove Connor and I's ego from the decision because it's all about building community, right? It's not about who's right or wrong, who's got the better idea or who gets to make the decision. It's about what is the right decision for our business and what is the right decision with regards to building community.
0: Yeah. One of the people uh, in, in the comments asked a question about what metrics do you check on a daily and weekly basis? And I guess it really comes down to accountability comes down to, you know, knowing what's important to measure and track and you know make decisions off of versus what's just the vanity metric and maybe you know should should be uh disregarded talk to us a little bit about how do you measure success and what are some of the things that matter to you um versus you know things that don't
1: sure
2: yeah so we've got uh all good no flown toilets
1: (laughs) okay for now
2: so we we have a a weekly meeting the whole team we go over our, our weekly scorecard and so the question was about metrics. What metrics do we track? So we we do work through um, metrics that will kind of make sure we know kind of where we are in a certain position within the company. So there's revenue, you know, number of deals closed, number of calls made, uh,
1: number of garments sold,
2: number of garments sold. So we'll look at our online sales, we'll look at our our website visitors, and kind of look at you know two things, right? So we have two two main sides of the business. One being B two B custom, so we sell custom garments. So Uh, if paper stack, you know, they wanted some t-shirts for their team. We can make that for them. And, uh, that was something that really grew out of COVID because prior to that, we were just a retail brand. So we'd sell online and that's one part of our business and then the B2B side. So with the B2B, we found that a lot of organizations, not just people, organizations shared the same values as us and actually wanted to print their company logo on a garment that actually share the same values as their company. So that sort of grew. So we have two sides of the business. So on our weekly scorecard, we'll be measuring kind of the different funnels within the B2B, but also the funnels within the direct to consumer. And then obviously a bit of a finance health check-in, right? What's our accounts receivable at? What's our accounts payable at? What's our production quota at? So making sure we're kind of looking in what is the health of our business on a weekly basis and it's it's been a learning experience it's been a challenge you know we've, we've changed the metrics quite a bit we've changed the scorecards pretty often just trying to find that right balance uh because i think it's a combination of what we discovered is, is there's leading indicators and there's trailing indicators right so what you want to be tracking is is as much as possible as those leading indicators right so what are the actions what are the pieces that you're doing on a weekly basis in the business to get results. And then there's the trailing indicators, which is the results, right? So if you just track the trailing, which we used to, uh, it was difficult because it wasn't necessarily predicting our our future success. It was just kind of telling us what we were doing today versus what we're trying to do now and changing the scorecard is is track more of those leading indicators. So it's better to understand, hey, we know where we are today. We know what we've done to get to where we want to be tomorrow. And then let's kind of make it easier to predict somewhere in the middle of where we expect to be Mm -hmm. in the next two
0: weeks the next month do, do, do things like average order value and you know margins like matter as much to you as say you know growth week over week or retention like how do you think about those uh, specific metrics and maybe you can even talk a little bit about each of those for people that don't really know what what why why that even matters maybe you can just describe um uh, how you how you assess and uh, and how you uh, make decisions based off, off of those
2: yeah, so we're probably unique in the e-com space that we're not a growth at all cost model. Um, you know, most e-commerce companies will look at your AOVs, so your average order value, they'll look at your your CAC, your customer acquisition costs, they'll look at your LTV, your lifetime customer value. Um, and, and we do look at all those numbers, but that's not a measurement that we're tracking on a weekly basis to make sure we're nailing on those numbers because we actually, believe it or not, we cut all of our ad spend as of June. So we haven't spent a dollar on outbound advertising since the start of June, and we've had two huge months, right? So we didn't notice a massive decrease in sales revenue. And so I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And and we've kind of derived our own assumptions. But when when it comes down to it, we just we didn't feel like we were getting the value. So we see on average, um, a pretty significant average order value because we are a higher priced item. But we also notice that, you know, customers on average are buying 1.6 pieces. So we do have customers that are buying more than one garment at a time. Uh, we've got a pretty solid return customer rates and then customer acquisition cost is you know, pretty much kind of zero right now because we're not necessarily paying any ad spend to, to bring the customer in. Um, and then we've got a really solid lifetime value. So we're really trying to find our sweet spot before we start mm-hmm. to dump a bunch more money back into the ad space. We, we, we just found that as a team, A, you know, we've worked with an agency. We weren't that strong in that space. And we don't have a growth at all cost model. So what we're really trying to create is an incredible customer experience and win at customer service, so that we can get most of our sales from word of mouth, which is where it comes from. So instead of spending our money trying to you know, get as many acquire as many customers in the ad space as possible, we're spending more of that margin and more of that money on creating an incredible customer experience and and winning at customer service to try and drive more word of mouth.
0: How do you think about profitability and what sort of like a reasonable level of profit margin that e-commerce brands should be aiming for and say, you know, their second, third, fourth year in business, if they're not pursuing that growth at all cost model and they're just maintaining, you know, steady level of growth and operating as usual. What's, what's the, uh, what's the benchmark in the, in, in the space?
2: Yeah, I can't speak to the benchmark, but I'll, I'll talk about our experience. Um, it's, it's been, uh, You know, we have ups and downs. Our goal from day one has always been to to, to cash flow positive, right? We've never taken on any outside debt. We've never taken on any outside investments. You know, we've grown from, we put in $300, like a thousand bucks at the very beginning, you know, we're now over 3 million. So everything has just been cash flowed back into the business to try and be profitable. Um, we do give a lot to charity, which is, uh, you know, that kind of takes away from it, but it's challenging. Trying to scale an e-commerce business, right? Because you need inventory, right? You do need that overhead to grow the team. You do need that that solid cash flow to be able to make sure that you're growing different parts of the business. For example, uh, we just got our own warehouse. Previously, we were using a three PL um, in Toronto, which was where all of our manufacturing was. But this year, we just got our own warehouse. So, ton of un- unexpected expenses that came with that building out a warehouse space. So, um, yeah, I, I don't really have any. Um, Idea what what a typical e-commerce company is. It really depends, right? Because you're there's so many different categories: clothing, you know, products, coffee, food, beverage, everything else. Uh, but I think for us, our goal has always been to remain profitable, so that we can take that profit. A you know, give a good portion back to charity, but also use that profit to reinvest back into the business. And that's a big reason why. It took me five years to go full time because I I couldn't draw a salary from the company because we needed every single dollar to be going back into the company to reinvest, to help with that growth. So it was five years before I I took a paycheck. You know, it was about three years before Connor did. And so it's just reinvesting back in the company to make sure you can help to cash flow some of that growth.
0: Wow. Wow. Three years. Wow. It's I don't know. What about venture funding or uh, some sort of, you know, debt financing, you worked at ATV, wouldn't they extend a line of credit or something to help out with that uh, working capital? So have you considered potentially attracting venture investments into this business so you could afford to pay yourself and then, you know, hire some?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, so, yes, we, we do have a line of credit in place, right? But I look at long-term debt as like, you know, we're, we're making payments each month, debt repayments. So, um, of course, working in a bank, I had to make sure that we had the right finance tools in place. Uh, and a line of credit just simply helps with cash flow when required, right? So for example, as we head into busy Christmas season, we want to bulk up on inventory. There's a good chance we're probably going to be drawing on our line of credit to make sure that we're preparing for what should be a busy holiday season. So that's where those tools can help. But when we look at long-term debt, you know, we haven't taken on any lending to kind of use as a certain, um, yeah, to use as a, as a, as a, tool, uh, it's always been a discussion. Um, You know, we kind of go back and forth on it. You it's, it's hard, right? You see those companies that are growing like crazy and they're hiring all these people and they're everywhere, right? They've got thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in marketing budget. And uh, we just chose not to go that route, right? We, we, we really like our company values of being flexible, of putting life first, right? Um, You know, as soon as you add long-term debt, as soon as you add an investor into the mix, that, that kind of changes things, right? So, I think it'd be really hard for us to find an investor that is kind of as, um, not lazy fair, but you know, our, our number one company value is life first, which basically means like if your dog's sick and you got to take him to the vet, like if we have a company meeting, yeah, you're going to take your dog to the vet. Right. Or for me, uh, in December, basically I, I lost childcare. And so I was home with the kids every single day during the day, and then I'd work in the evenings, so. It's, it's been a tough balance, right? Cause what we, we wanna do is, is create a great company culture with good company values and not be focused on growth at all costs. Uh, whereas I think from an investment standpoint, that, that's really where investors are looking for, right? They're looking for a, a solid, quick ROI. And I think we just have a different approach.
0: Right? Yeah, Connor, what are your thoughts on that? We fi- finally, gladly we got you back. Um, <laughs> what's, what's it, what, what are your thoughts around attracting, you know, potential angel investors or, or VCs, um, was that was that something you decided from the very beginning? Is that you you, you didn't feel like you wanted to uh, convince others in in sort of like the vision that your company should pursue and sort of like remain in control, or or is that something you're still sort of considering? You know, given the right valuation, maybe the right type of partnership.
1: Yeah, I I I think it's just something that's just it's been more of a personal choice for Dustin and I. I I, I don't know if it's. I don't know if, if it's something more that I don't think it's something that's entirely necessary for us at the point, at this point, you know, could we grow faster? Probably, you know, do we want to grow as fast as we can? Not really. We really want to grow something. We want to lay the foundation down, really build this up, right. Build something that can last, you know, are we looking to exit the next five, 10 years? Probably not. We just, we really like what we're doing and, so our goal is just to, to keep doing what we're doing, build this rocket ship, build our merry band of pirates, and just you know, have fun along the way. You know, do we work long hours? Are we stretched too thin? Absolutely. But I mean, <laughs> all of us, we kind of look back at what our lives were like before working, you know, at, at other jobs or working with other people, and we're just 10 times happier doing what we do now. And if that doesn't make us millionaires or it doesn't, you know, it doesn't allow us to, to grow as fast as we can, then that's okay. I personally am a big believer that we can grow this business and get to where we want to go without having to pitch ourselves and without having to sell off a bunch of the company to investors that want one thing and one thing only, which is a return on their investment. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. It's just different. I think if it's, 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 yeah, it's been back and forth. It's been balanced, right? You know, I came from the tech space, you know, you're in the tech space. I, I think it's, it's near enough impossible to do, you know, from for, on the tech side of things, but with, with clothing and, in the industry we're in, I think it's possible, you know, if, if, but it might just take a little bit longer, might just be a little bit slower yeah. Yeah. and it might just take a different path. But
2: yeah, I think the other thing too is, um, you know, not, not coming from the VC space is we, we've always operated under the, the assumption that, you know, we're a clothing business, we're not really a tech company, right? We're not really investable. So I think that's also been, um, you know, maybe a limiting factor, but we've just, we've never, we've never really approached that because we, we've always just kind of assumed we're not really an investable business. Now, yeah. we, we've talked about different methods of growth and different ways to grow the company. And, and you know, one of those is through uh, different forms of acquisition. So that's not to say we would never that that may be a point in time where if we're going to look at, you know, acquiring a different company or brand or um, you know, somewhere down the stream, that that might be the opportunity to bring on an investor, you know, for that specific acquisition mm-hmm. and grow in a certain space. But I think for right now, for this
0: business, uh, we, we don't necessarily have a need. Right. Right. And that's the best position you want to find yourself in is, you know, not desperately needing, like you said, you know, outside capital. To be able to make it, you, you're you're fine. You will be able to make it uh, on your own without any external capital. It's just really the the decision of you know how much uh, leverage you want to take on and how much quicker you want to go. But the you know uh, the business is definitely there. Um, Connor, when when you were away, Dustin mentioned about reaching about three million dollars uh, in in revenue um i hope i i got that right and then he called you a bulldozer which means you're going through all the all the all the <clears throat> un, 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 uncertainties and you lay that sort of like path for the business talk to me about your path getting there um how did you went about acquiring customers first on the d2c side of things and then eventually going into this b2b which is very interesting and i'd love to maybe spend you know two three minutes just on the beat, like picking your brain on the on the B2B side. Um, but what, what are your primary sources, uh, uh, primary means of acquiring customers? Is it through ads before? And now you're kind of you know tapering that off. Was it always through community and word of mouth? Have you experimented with influencer marketing? Uh, what platforms do you like? I see a lot of on TikTok, but I also see TikTok videos on LinkedIn. So that's
1: interesting. Talk to me through customer acquisition. We'd love to hear your thoughts. I think customer acquisition is as simple as really just defining what a business is. And and a business in my mind is just a series of relationships of real, authentic and genuine relationships. And I use that mindset for call it call customer acquisition. I call it friend building. I mean, (laughs) really, that's all it comes down to if Dust and I are good at one thing and one thing only it's maintaining and building relationships that are real, authentic, and full, packed full of trust. That's how we acquire customers, whether it's a B2B space, D2C, is we actually care. We care about the people that we're working with. We care about our customers, our team members, our community, our vendors. We're one of our, our, our main manufacturing partners. We're one of their smallest clients, but we, we've been told we are their favorite, their absolutely favorite clients just for the simple reasons that we're the only ones who say thank you. You know, can you imagine that? That we're the only ones that say thank you when they, when they, they, they make clothing with us. And so that's, that that's really been our, our belief is that you, know, you can acquire new customers. You can reach new people by just simply being a human being and actually taking a real genuine interest in, in how the other person's doing, what they're all about, where they want to go and having care about, you know, how you treat them, right? And whether that's remembering their birthdays, sending them little little gifts. Two of our manufacturing partners, they just, they went above and beyond. They worked weekends to get this massive order, 1100 shirts out for a tech conference out in Vancouver that's happening right now. And they work day and night. And so we sent cupcakes to uh, to them and their whole team. Like little things like that, you know, that, that really kind of go a long way. And once you build those relationships, though they're willing to go above and beyond for you. They're willing to talk about you, you know, that crazy Connor and his made in Canada clothing brand, you know, like they're, they're, they're kooky, but man, are they, are they fun to hang out with? Are they fun to chat with? You know, I'd rather buy my clothes with them than someone who I'm just a number with, you know, when a customer comes in, you know, giving them tour of the space, we, you know, whatever we have in our fridge, we give them to them, whether it's energy tea, beer, candy, ice cream, sandwich, you name it. So I think that's, that's been really, really our key to, to customer acquisition. Both on those, those side of things, I think that yeah. comes through, we utilize platforms like TikTok, like LinkedIn to really express that, that authenticity. We're not on there dancing. We're not on there trying to be these cool fashion moguls. who so we're not, we're just being ourselves. We're using as platforms as ways to connect with as many people as, as, as we can. I think that's been the key to our success. It's, it's always been an organic
2: approach. Um. You know, I think if I look at our, like getting to our first 3 million in total revenue, we probably spent less than $25,000 on advertising. So, you know, the the return on ad spend, quote unquote, for the total revenue is, is significantly high because we've always had an inbound. Um, it, it's always been inbound, right? So we, we do so much in, in trying to market and build community and, and really focus our efforts on, on, uh, you know, trying to promote the brand in in that regard and creating a positive customer experience, developing those relationships, that word of mouth is our single biggest biggest return. And the interesting part too about the B2B is, um, you know, that came out about during COVID, right? So essentially the story there is we lost about 65% of our revenue overnight uh, when COVID hit because we were in a lot of retailers and retailers Mm -hmm. closed their doors. So this was march You know, we're gearing up for a busy spring COVID hits and you know, all of a sudden the the floor falls out from underneath and so we started to look at some of the things we'd said no to in the past and uh we kept getting asked by companies if they could print their logo on our merch we said no we're a retail brand we don't do that but we went back to one and we're like why why do you want to do this and it's like well you know my company shares the same values i want to print on something that's local and that, that shares the same values as i do so we said okay so we tried it we tried it a couple more times and started to ask more people and so it's sure enough during COVID, you know we actually We grew by 98% during COVID went from losing, you know, almost 65% of revenue to growing by almost hundred percent because we started to do a lot of these custom projects and every single one of those projects for the next two years, you know, we did probably 1.6 in, in custom revenue over the course of two and a half years. Um, all of that came from word of mouth. And so it's, it's really interesting and we're really unique in that sense in that we've got this direct to consumer retail brand, but then we've also got this B2B business but it's really, they drive each other. We, we look at this kind of this circle. And so we get a retail customer or a customer that's bought, you know, one of our t-shirts, but they work for this company and they're like, oh, I want my company to have these great pieces. Cause they are very high quality, very comfortable. And they, 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 they come you know, really well made with good values. And so they will go to their company or they're the purchaser of their company. And so they'll order for the company because they know our retail brand. And then if they do that, like for example, just shipped 1100 t-shirts to a conference in Vancouver, well, now we have potentially 1,100 new customers that are being introduced to the brand, which then they can interact with the brand on the retail side. So it really kind of drives the revenue by both, which is kind of unique.
1: Uh, Connor, I know mean, you wanted to, yeah, go ahead. i want to ask you a question. Time that we tired of answering questions. I, I want to ask the questions now. <laughs> okay. When was the last time, I want you to answer me honestly now. When was the last time you had an amazing customer service experience? So much that you were just like, floored when was the last time you had a great customer service experience yeah it's pretty rare.
0: i uh you I, can't remember I can't remember i can remember all the bad experiences and they all happen yeah. this
1: week too so it's pretty frequent uh occurrence that's, but mm-hmm. that's where i think the opportunity is you if you can't even remember the last time you had a good experience but your mind is just so jam-packed of all the bad experiences that, that you've had that's where i think our big biggest opportunity is We just had a meeting about this today. There's a big opportunity in marketing through customer service. You have to look no further than the great tech company Zappos, Delivering Happiness, Tony Shea, fantastic book, highly recommend it. But that's where we think the biggest marketing opportunity is because today it's all about the sales and marketing. It's all about the sales and getting every single person right to that sale. And then as soon as you get that sale, dump them like hot garbage, right? The customer service is just has just departed this world like a like a fleeting vision. And so that's where I think the biggest opportunity for us is, is, is being Canada's most caring clothing company and creating a customer service experience where, hey, we actually wanna to talk to you. You got an issue? Come on in, give us a phone call, text us, whatever you need. We'll figure it out. We'll find a solution that makes everyone happy. So much so that you're gonna go out and tell 10 people about how much of an amazing time you had just talking with Connor, Dustin, or Kathleen that's where I think the real point of difference is and that's where I think the real the real potential for growth is is because customer service has just completely vanished off the face of the earth
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree with you I agree with you and I, I love seeing I, I I'd love to see more brands opening themselves up to uh, customers to call them text them email them but not through like an automation of some sort no. which is what Lot, I, I know, I know. Which is what a lot of you know celebrities
1: do. Here, text me. It's like, or, or, it's like and, and then everyone's trying to come out with automated chatbots, right? That that that'll just have a guess of what you what you need yeah. and put you to an FAQ that just get you off their website without solving a problem. There's all sorts of restaurants are getting rid of phone numbers so you can't call and actually talk to. Them. Nobody wants to talk to people anymore. Everyone's afraid of everyone, and so that's why I think we can make the biggest difference is let's actually care about people again. Let's actually care about how people are feeling that put it in tech terms, the user experience, right. And, and how people are actually feeling past that initial sales and marketing. It's not all about how many sales can we get, how many new customers, how can we increase our average order value? It's about how many customers can we create a once in a lifetime experience by just being human beings by asking, Hey, how was your weekend? What'd you get up to what's your dog's name how many languages you speak you know where where are you from what do you care about going anywhere for the holidays <laughs> little things it does it and that's the, that's the shocking thing it doesn't take that much effort it can be as simple as a thank you right and i gave the example earlier why that's that's why we're our manufacturers favorite partners is not because we make them the most money it's just because they actually they they don't mind when we call and ask for something or need something they're more than willing to help because we're actually you know and i think a big part of that is that we're passionate about what we do we love what we do we're excited to be here every day and that passion can kind of that pa- passion can be infectious right it yes. doesn't have to be it can be whatever you know whether it's rock climbing rock gardens or rock concerts you know whatever you're passionate about if you show show that enthusiasm and show that passion it can be infectious and i think personally that, that could be a really great opportunity for growth
0: through customer service. Well, I, I hope uh, Hamza is taking notes. He's struggling to run his clothing business. But before that, I saw he asked, how do you find business partners? And I guess we answered that question before. But when you are evaluating uh, vendors to work with, you know, agencies potentially to outsource some of the work to, um, what are the qualities or what's your, uh, what's your selection process like? And then I just have one last question I tried. I want to sneak in about the charitable giving, if you guys don't mind.
2: Sure. Uh, Yeah. So, I mean, number one is is it goes through values, right? So understand what your values are, what your company values are, and make sure that if you're going to bring on a partner, that they share those same values. Um, Again, talking about why, why our manufacturer said yes to working over the weekend, you know, having gone through COVID and labor shortage, the last thing he wanted to do was ask his staff to stay and work an extra shift on the weekend. But, you know, because we asked, he said, yes. So obviously, it is about kind of building those relationships and making sure it's not transactional. I think that that's one of the reasons why we have such high word of mouth, why, you know, we do build such good relationships because it's not just about transactional. And I think that's where the e-comm world is, is a lot of companies are getting it wrong because they're only focused on customer acquisition costs and, and if they can try and get LTV in there, but. You know, it's just, if we can, if we can acquire a customer for $20 and our profit margin is 50, then, you know, we know we've got, we've got 30 left. So let's invest, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in ad spend and let's crank that out. But, you know, really, if you can spend a little bit more extra money on creating a great customer experience, going back to what Connor was saying, that that's going to go a long way. So again, that's really important to us. So you have to make sure that. That's also really important to the manufacturing partner that you're working with or the fulfillment partner that you're working with, that they're willing to kind of invest in that with you. Um, We don't do a lot of outsourcing. Uh, You know, again, we're all about domestic manufacturing. So it's the same thing when we're working with with people. We would prefer to have them them local. And so that selection process really comes down to sharing those values and and being a bit of a culture fit. Uh, And that's that's super important. Uh, When it comes to business partners, similar thing, right? If you're looking for a business partner, you have to be open. Go for coffee, go to meetups, go to events and and put it out there, right? Put it out there on social media, put it out there everywhere to just say, hey, you know, here's what I'm looking for. Here's my ask. Is there anyone that's willing to help? Um, It's incredible how much we've gotten by just asking and saying, hey, this is what we're looking for, um, because people are usually willing to help. And then when it is business partnership, you know, take the time actually learn about that person to understand their strengths weaknesses we you know quote unquote dated for three months before we actually signed our incorporation papers um that's the the number one thing i saw in in giving finance and where businesses failed and partnerships was people just jumped into it you know without having a shared vision without having shared goals
1: without having shared values and can i just say i think you and your team over at paper stack do an incredible job a building community but b building real authentic relationships i mean i was just kind of rattling off all the things in my head that you guys are doing you know from a community standpoint and it is it is fascinating because it's something that you don't quite see too often in the tech space you know you guys had a slack channel for all your customers that we can all still do i know and i and we're still a part of it and i love it and you know you so we're getting connected with all these other great customers this this community is doing these live interviews i mean you know we it, it's it's not like it's it's not like you've made a boatload of money with with dustin and i you know but you're you're every time you we interact it's you guys are coming from a real authentic genuine place you actually care about how we're doing you know how our business is progressing and it's, it's the same thing with us anytime we see you know like oh man paper stack cohen or just won another big award like we get so pumped we're like yes you know we, we love seeing your guys's journey you know and, and we're completely completely opposite ends of the country opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of industry, but we've created a real authentic relationship. And, and now we're now part of a community together, which I think, you know, it's a two way street. We're generally interested in you guys, but you guys do a fantastic job of building community yourselves. And we are just so thankful to be a part of it.
0: Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it. I, it's, it, are, do we have a hard stop right now at at uh... Uh, do you still have maybe one or two more questions about the charitable giving so yeah go ahead yeah no uh, i i would hate myself if we and i appreciate all the all the kind words and you know really the credit goes to yourself for you know actually thinking about the community and not just the 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 the, the financials and uh investing heavily into that um but i want to finish this conversation by um uh, emphasizing the charitable giving now there's a lot of companies that you know, start off and they say, well, you know, for every bottle of water, you know, we will donate this here, you know, there. And sometimes it's a double-edged sword, right? Sometimes it makes a lot of sense because, you know, person who started that business has, you know, um, uh, a connection to that cause or, you know, experience that, you know, personally, but sometimes it just, you know, feels not so authentic. And so it's a really a fine line that a business needs to walk when it comes to, you know, operations versus charity. Um, you've pledged to donate million dollars to a charitable local local causes and you're about 15% there which is amazing uh you still have uh, a long way to go but it's it's great to see a brand like yours uh, uh doing that uh, talk me through the thought process and how you've uh, how how did you come up with this how did you kind of you know got that into your business um what was the thought process around sort of like donating what what causes do you support um, and uh, if there's anything you want to ask of, of the audience, or, or 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 you know, maybe share with us, we would love to help amplify that.
2: Yeah, it's a it's pretty it's a B-head, great big hairy audacious goal. Um, you know, we, we kind of know how we're gonna get there, but at the same time, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> so um, yeah, we're, we're working on it. We used to say that 10% of all of our profits went back to local charities, but you know, it turns out we were donating way, way more than 10%. So we kind of went away with that. And we just said, sort of look, like our goal is to donate a million dollars to local charities. So, um, there's a lot that, you know, we do as a company with collaborations. So for example, we just finished up a, an Alberta pride collaboration. So a lot of times it's, it's a dollar per garment kind of collaboration that we work on. So we partnered with ATB, you know, their local, uh, local bank here in Alberta. Uh, to do these Alberta pride sweaters. Um, so basically, you know, we created them, we co-created them, collaborated, and then we sell them online. And so $50 from every sweater would actually be donated back to a local pride community. So with that specific one, you know, we raised over $10,000. So a lot of times it's built kind of on these different collaborations where we will do a charitable component and, and we will donate based on a certain dollar per garment. Uh, And then another big one for us is our giving garments. So we, we sell, um, tukes, socks, and blankets that are all you buy when we donate one. So during the holiday season, you know, tukes and socks are a big one where every time we sell one, we'll donate one to a shelter. And so that, you know, we've donated thousands of tukes and pairs of socks over the course of the past five years since we've been doing that. So that's a big component as well. Um, and then sometimes driven, driven by customers, right? So they'll recommend or they'll reach out saying that they've got this great uh, you know charity or, or event that they want to, help us or
0: they want us to participate in. And so we'll donate in that regards, but it's, it's kind of a mix. Yeah. Connor, what are your, what are your thoughts on uh, on charity? And let's just wrap it up there, but I'd love, I'd love to get, hear your thoughts as well on that. Uh, we don't um, see it
1: as giving back. One of our, our great mentors was, was from Righteous Strelato. And they kind of talk about giving back. We talk about giving back to the community and donating. It implies that you took something. We really see it as an investment back to the community, right? We're investing in the community. Like I said, we want to build a business that's going to be lay the foundation, It's going to be here around for a long time. You can't do that without investing in the community ecosystem as a whole. So we really see it not as a way of giving back to the community, but just investing in the community. And that comes into shape, forms of all different causes, all different campaigns, charities, you name it. And we just see it as, you know, there's a lot of, great people. Our communities really supported us, made investments in us in terms of supporting our clothing, you know, helping us when we've asked for help. So it's just our way of investing back into the community. John,
0: and thank you so much. I appreciate you joining and sharing your, your experience building up local laundry. Um, everybody watching check, check out the website and we'll probably post it afterwards in in the link to the website, consider supporting locally manufactured, locally consumed, uh, products and, uh, um, follow these two amazing entrepreneurs on on socials to uh, to learn to learn um, firsthand from how they're pursuing building this great company. Uh, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate this this opportunity, and we'll stay in touch, guys.
1: Thanks so much. Thanks for thanks for uh, giving us the platform, and thanks for giving other entrepreneurs the platform to share their story. It Means Absolutely. a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, buddy.
0: We'll chat soon.